And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. All religions, including some that purport to be Christian, um, believe that the way a person gets right with God is through good works. Every religion is man's effort to be reconciled to God by basically earning his favor. But biblical Christianity is different. Biblical Christianity is God's reconciling sinful man to himself apart from our good works. There's those words again, apart from our good works. God sent his eternal son to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we can be right with him through grace alone by trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, the question about the difference between Christianity and other world religions is a vital one. It leads to the most important question that anybody could ever ask for themselves. How can I be right with God? Or more specifically, how can a sinner such as I be right with God who is absolutely righteous? How does that work? This is the question that Paul finally answers in our text in the following verses. Now, I say finally because, as I said earlier, from 118 through 320, Paul forcefully drives home the point that all people, whether they're pagan Gentiles or religious Jews, they're all under sin. He spent so long on that subject, especially hitting the religious Jews for their self-righteousness, because he knows that unless we feel the weight of our sin and condemnation, we won't appreciate our need for the gospel. We need to understand the bad news before we're going to welcome the good news. Now, uh, Paul, early on, just before this huge section that we've just gone through, he referred to the gospel. In verses 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, now he comes back to that theme, mentioning the righteousness of God being manifested. He says there is no distinction. Now, he's talking about there the difference between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction. And he also mentions the need for everyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, coming after the inescapable condemnation of 118 through 320, the but now, like I said earlier, of verse 21 is one of the greatest contrasts in the Bible. Paul uses the same phrase in Romans 6 when he contrasts our past lives as slaves of sin headed for death and he contrasts that with having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. And he says, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And he's fond of making this same dramatic contrast in other places as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, no man can be a Christian without realizing his utter hopelessness. He goes on to say that the answer to whether you are a Christian or not hinges on your answer to this question, is there a but now in your experience? Now, in our text, uh, Paul answers the age-old questions that, that's asked really several times in the book of Job, how can a person be right with God? Now, this is such a foundational test, uh, text that Leon Morris calls verses 21 through 26. We'll, Lord willing, pick up 25 and 26 next week. He says they're possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. 
Alvin McLean says if he could only have six verses out of the entire Bible, he would choose Romans 3, 21 through 26. And Lloyd-Jones says it is no exaggeration to say of this section that it is one of the greatest and most important sections in the whole of Scripture. Now, when I read that in about six different commentaries, how do you think that makes me feel? Unworthy to preach on this subject. Uh, we desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand and to, to apply these crucial verses. Paul shows that if salvation depends on our works, we face two impossible barriers, the righteousness of God and the glory of God. How can we who have sinned be reconciled to the righteous God of all glory? How can we who have dishonored him enter into his holy presence? You remember, David said, if you should mark iniquity, O God, who could stand? Well, we're all iniquitous. Well, here's the great news. Sinners can be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ and his gracious sacrifice to redeem us. Well, let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see this morning, hearts to understand this truth, Father, that it's through your son Jesus that we can be made right with you today. Father, do that for your honor, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, it is crucial to understand three main things. Now, I just, something popped into my mind. Somebody remind me at the end to talk about forgiven ministries. I was supposed to do that before, but if I forget, just blurt it out. Uh, first thing we need to see is that we all need to be right with God because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. After spending two full chapters hammering home this point, why does Paul bring it up again? He writes, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, he says it again because he knows how prone, how prone we all are, especially those of us from, religi from religious backgrounds. We're prone to minimize our sin and to justify ourselves by our good deeds. That's kind of in our fallen human nature. Now, there's three sub-points here I want you to see. A, the main issue that we must face is how to be right with a righteous God. When we present the gospel, we're apt to talk about God's love and his mercy. But Paul is mainly concerned here to talk about God's righteousness and our sin or lack of righteousness. He mentions righteousness in verse 21, 22, 25, and 26 plus justify in 24 and 26, and just in verse 6. Now, in Greek, all of those words came or come from the same word root. So in six verses, Paul mentions God's righteousness seven times. Do you think it might be important? God's righteousness refers to his absolute holiness or separateness from all sin and all that is wrong. But in this context, Paul is especially referring to how sinners may be justified or declared righteous in God's sight. The but now of 321 certainly must be applied personally, each one of us. But in the context, it refers to the contrast between, um, in salvation history, between the era of the law of Moses, which we see in the Old Testament, and the era of God's grace that we now have through Jesus Christ. As verse 20 shows, God's law is not able to justify us. Rather, it condemns us. 
it points out the many ways in which we have violated God's holy standard. And since we're all guilty of breaking God's law, we all must face that crucial question, how can I be right with a righteous God in view of my many sins? Well, B, both pagans and the religious, they have sinned and they need to be right with God. When Paul says there in 22b, for there is no distinction, he means no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The religious Jews, they would have agreed wholeheartedly with Paul that the Gentiles are under sin. But he had labored through chapters 2 and 3 to show that even the carefully religious Jew is guilty of not keeping God's holy law. When Paul says all have sinned, he uses the Greek aorist tense. We don't have that in English. This leads some commentators to argue that he's referring to our identification with Adam in his original sin. And the text allows that. Okay, the Greek allows that. And that is true. We're sinners today because of Adam's first sin. He talks about that later in chapter 5. But the aorist tense can also be used to look at the fact or the reality of the action itself. So Paul means look around. Look at yourself and you will see that all without exception have sinned. Now, false short there is in the present tense. And, and what that means is that we are consistently or even continuously sinning and falling short of God's glory. Well, that leads to, to, to subpoint number three here. C, the essence of sin is to fall short of God's, God's glory. What does that mean? John Piper explains that we were created to reflect God's glory. Uh, the moon gives off no light on its own, does it? If it were not for the sun, we would probably never see it, right? It would just be a, a dark planet out there. Well, that's how, now, this is not a perfect analogy because we actually, even as sinners, we still have the image of God within us. Why do you think it is that after a disaster, so many people step up to do the right thing and they're not Christians? That's... That's the image of God coming out. But we also see the devil stepping up, don't we, in bad situations where people try to take advantage of the situation, all right? So in this regard, the moon has no light. We have the image of God with this, within us, but we, we've already been shown there in, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 18, that we suppress that truth in unrighteousness, and it leaves us without excuse, all right? So we are to reflect God's glory, he says, we reflect his glory as we, this is Piper, as we cherish it and keep it ever before us and make it the treasure and the goal of our lives. Then he refers to Romans 1.23 where Paul says that sinners exchanged the glory of God for what? For idols. He continues, thus we have traded treasures. We prefer other things in life to the delights of seeing and knowing the God of glory. This is a sense in which we lack the glory of God. We lack it as the treasure of our lives. We lack it as our passion and goal. This is the essence of sin, preferring other things to the glory of God, end quote. Now, of course, that's bad news. And as we've seen, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God's law condemns us all as sinners, 
how can we possibly get around that and get right with God? I want you to notice that there's a hint of good news even in Paul stating the bad news. So major point number two here, sinners can be right with God apart from the law. There's those words again, apart from the law. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So as we see and have seen, the law cannot put anyone in a right relationship with God. Rather, the law simply reveals God's holy standard, which convicts and condemns us of our own sin. But this new way of gaining right standing with God is apart from the law. It's separate from it. He means it is apart from keeping the law perfectly as an attempt to be right with Him. Um, it's a completely different approach. But then the question comes up, is it in opposition to the law? Well, no. Paul says it is actually witnessed by the law and the prophets, by which he means the entire Old Testament. Now, Paul adds this phrase here to show his Jewish readers that he's not trying to overthrow the Scriptures. In fact, coming up in verse 31, he says, do we nullify the law through faith? In other words, when we exhibit faith, are we casting aside the law? He says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. How do we establish the law? We agree it's right that we're sinners and we recognize that. Now he goes on to illustrate this in chapter 4 with the example of Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. He backs this up quoting Psalm 32 where David exults in the blessing uh, on the man who God credits righteousness apart from works. So we would be mistaken if we thought that the Old Testament taught that sinners get right with God by keeping the law, and whereas the New Testament overthrows that and says, no, now you get right with God by faith. No, in the Old Testament, God credited His righteousness to sinners who by faith looked ahead to the promised Savior. Now, in the New Testament, the Savior has been revealed and He has given Himself as the sacrifice for sinners. To paraphrase Paul's flow of thought here in these four verses, trying to keep God's law will not get anyone into right standing with Him. Rather, the law shows us how sinful we really are. And that's the purpose of the law. Galatians chapter uh, 3 talks about this explicitly. The law is like a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It shows us we need help because we cannot keep it, okay? So now, apart from the law, but in line with what both the law and the prophets pointed to, God declares sinners righteous when they simply believe in His final sacrifice for sins, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, that leads to major point number three. All sinners can be right with God through His free grace by trusting in Jesus Christ and the redemption that we find in Him. Now, since all have sinned, it would kind of be pointless for Paul to write about a way of being right with God that didn't apply to all sinners. But ironically, it is those who don't see themselves as sinners who miss God's way of righteousness. 
If you don't think that you're sick, you're not going to go to the doctor. You're not going to take the medicine you need. We have to accept the diagnosis that we're sinners before we will welcome the cure of God's free grace in Christ. Now, to understand this good news, it's both simple and yet quite profound. It's simple enough for a child to understand. But it's also deep enough to evoke thousands, maybe millions of pages of deep theology. In these and the following verses, Paul uses four important theological words that we need to learn something about. You've got justification, free grace, redemption, and faith. So let's begin with justification. That's my A here. To be justified means that God declares us to be righteous. To justify doesn't mean to make someone righteous, but to declare him to be righteous. It's a forensic or, or legal term that means to obtain the verdict of acquittal. Here's how Charles, Charles Hodge defines it. He says, justification is pronouncing one to be just and treating him accordingly on the ground that the demands of the law have been satisfied concerning him. Do you see that? This person is no longer, in God's eyes, a lawbreaker. Okay, that's been satisfied. So now this person is justified. He's right with God. Here's an example in Deuteronomy 25.1. It talks about judges deciding a case and they justify the righteous and they condemn the wicked. They pronounce the verdict not guilty on the righteous and guilty on the wicked. They didn't make the accused righteous or wicked. Rather, they pronounced them to be such. Now, in Romans 3.24, the verb justification is passive. You know what that means? That means it's something that God does to us. It's not something that we do for ourselves. And it's not a process, but a judicial action. The process of becoming righteous in character and behavior, that follows God's judicial act of declaring us righteous. Now, declaring us righteous, okay, that's, that's what we want. But that leads to us actually, yeah, over the years, becoming more and more like Christ, becoming more and more righteous. Okay, so that's, that's justification. Uh, there's, there's a big difference between what we believe in justification and what the Catholic Church believes about justification. A, a major difference. They believe that we are made righteous, not, they use the word infused, so if you infuse something into something, it becomes part of that person. And they, they believe that the righteousness of Christ is actually infused to us so that we become righteous. And when we get righteous enough, we can go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. We believe in imputed righteousness. Credited. I think I mentioned this just a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, Genesis uh, 15, 6. Uh, God says, hey, takes him outside, says, hey, count the stars if you can, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6 says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we are credited with the righteousness of Christ. 
And over time, yes, we are being conformed into his image. So yes, over time, we begin to look more and more like Jesus and we are kind of infused with that. We become more righteous. But our standing is that legal, it's that verdict that God looked down and says, not guilty. And it's done. You're his. Well, the second one is free grace. God justifies sinners freely by his grace. Now, look there in verse 24. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace. Now, the single Greek word translated as a gift, it means freely. Jesus used it to say in John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause. Same word. Read that sentence into Romans 3.24. Being justified without a cause. Paul uses the word in 2 Thessalonians 3.8 to say that he did not eat anyone's food without paying for it. Again, we can say that we are justified without paying for it. It's used in Revelation 22.17 where the thirsty soul is encouraged to take the water of life without cost. We're justified without cost. It is completely free. Now, as if that word alone were not enough to convey this astounding news, Paul adds one more of his favorite words, and it should be a favorite word of ours as well, by his grace. Grace is God's favor shown to those who actually deserve his wrath. It's completely unbelievable. Merited. You can see this in the next chapter, Romans 4, 4. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor. That word is charis. It's, it's, it's the Greek word, grace. It's not credited as grace, but as what is due. You see, when you work, you don't get grace. You get wages. You get what you're owed. Your boss owes it to you, and if he doesn't pay you, you can actually take him to court, Right? That's a legal thing. But grace is the opposite of working and receiving what you're owed. Think about it this way. You deserve to get fired because you really messed up at work. But instead, your boss gives you a big fat bonus. That's grace. God justifies sinners who deserve his wrath freely by his grace. And of course, the bonus is eternal life. Well, that's terrific news if you're the guilty sinner who is declared innocent freely because of God's grace. But frankly, it doesn't seem right. If an earthly judge declares a obviously guilty murderer not guilty and in addition awards him a fat monetary uh, judgment and then says, well, I wanted to give him what he did not deserve. What would we all say? Oh, that's not right. That's not just. So how can God be just when he declares guilty sinners righteous, justified, when they obviously don't deserve it? That brings us to our third word, redemption. God justifies sinners through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means to buy something back by the payment of a price or to release someone by payment of a ransom. In Paul's day, it referred to freeing prisoners of war and slaves by paying the required price, whatever it was. Jesus uses the word ransom, which is the root for the word redemption. Okay, they're, they're, they're related. In Mark 10, 45, when he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Through his death, Jesus paid the price or the penalty that God righteously imposed because of our sins. Thus, God's justice was satisfied. Jesus was our substitute, paying what we should have paid so that we go free at his great expense. Now, think about this. Justification from our perspective is completely free. But oh, is it costly to Jesus who redeemed us with his own blood. In the Old Testament, the the chief picture of redemption was Israel's being freed from slavery in Egypt. And to avoid the, the, the death of their firstborn children or sons, the Jews had to kill a lamb and place this blood on the doorpost and the lintels of their houses. And God saw the blood and passed over those homes. Well, in another place, Paul tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was slain to redeem us from our slavery to sin. And in that way, God can be both the be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, he's doing us no wrong. He's, not, he, he's still being just. He's still being right when he declares us not guilty because of what Jesus has done. Well, that leads to our last word, faith. God justifies sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Scholars debate whether the Greek phrase, which is literally through faith of Jesus Christ, whether that refers to Jesus' faithfulness, and we know he's always faithful, or to our faith in him. The Greek language allows both. Now, I agree with those who argue that it means faith in Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. It's not enough to have a general belief, a general faith in God. You must specifically put your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. But then is Peter being redundant, or Paul being redundant when he adds, for all those who believe. Paul just knows that uh, our fallen human tendency to want to be justified by our own supposed righteousness is so strong that he repeats it to make sure that we don't miss it. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ and it is for all who believe. The first phrase, through faith, that shows that faith is not something that merits salvation It is simply the hand that receives the gift. It's the conduit of grace. It's the way that we access grace. The last phrase, for for all those who believe, that underscores the universal offer of God's grace. No sinner need despair that he is too far gone. All who believe are justified by God's free grace. So how can you and I as sinners be right with a God who is absolutely holy? It's impossible to be right with God by striving to be good, a good person or by attempting to keep God's law. As verse 20 last week shows us, the law only reveals how far we fall short of God's glory. To be right with God by our good deeds, that'd kind of be like lining up on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and trying to jump across to the north rim. Now, an Olympic you know, long jumper might get 25, 30 feet before he plummets to his death. I'd probably get six feet, 
right? Between my knee and my back. I just can't do much anymore. An infirm person, we could take one step and, and, and they're gone, right? But no one could leap the 10 miles to the other side. It's impossible. On Judgment Day, the question is not going to be how far did you jump before you went down? The only question would be, did you get to the other side? You're either going to be lost by trying to get to heaven by your own good deeds, and that's what religion is, or you'll be justified by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. You've heard me many times. Um, I'll save that. The great news is that although we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, freely, by His grace, He declares those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross as righteous. To be right with God, make sure your trust is totally in Jesus Christ. If you have put, put your trust in Christ alone to carry you across that chasm that exists between you and God, then you know that there has been a huge but now in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those but nows in Scripture. If it were not for them, we would all be lost and going to hell without a single hope. But over and over again, we see but God doing something. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness of sin through what your son accomplished on the cross. Father, I pray if there's anybody again that does not know Jesus Christ this morning, that they would see Jesus high and lifted up. They'd see what he accomplished on their behalf on the cross and they would turn to him this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what I was going to speak about just a few seconds ago was, you've heard me many times, I use this as a kind of a altar call type situation. There's a big difference between religion, whatever it is, and Christianity. R religion is spelled D-O. D-O, do. And it's based on what you can do to get back to God. And that's what I was trying to explain earlier. It's about works. That's what religion is. Religion's foundation is works. What can you do to get back to God? What is Christianity? How is Christianity spelled? Done. D-O-N-E. It's based on what Christ, you've heard it. It's based on what Christ has done on the cross for us. Have you realized that? Have you understood the work of Jesus to be done in your, in your life? When Jesus says it is finished on the cross, do you think he was just talking about it's time for me to die now? No, he's talking about the ransom has been paid. The redemption is complete. It is finished. I've done what you've called me to do in regards to that salvation. So he goes in the tomb for three days and God vindicates him by raising him from the dead. Have you turned to Christ as your only hope? That's what it boils down to. You have to recognize your hopelessness in and of yourself. There's nothing absolutely nothing that you can do that you can say that you can think that will recommend you to God except his son Jesus Christ one of my favorite verses 2 Corinthians 5 21 for he God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ the divine exchange you give him your sin, he will give you the righteousness of his son, Jesus.
I hope you've done that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.